Welcome to The Order of Things. I'm your host, Alec, and today I speak to Ron Purser about his book, McMindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality. Ron is a professor of management at San Francisco State University. Welcome, Ron. How are you doing? Uh, Very good. I guess let's get into the meat of it. I'm sure most of our listeners would recognize at least some part of mindfulness. There is the medical component in reducing stress, anxiety, helping with alertness, also in specific cases like PTSD and and a million other things. But executives and CEOs are using it to sort of become better performers of business. People are downloading apps uh, to do mindfulness exercises to help them cope with the stress probably of their jobs from the CEO who's also taking mindfulness classes. And I'm sure I'm, I'm missing a lot. But I think you know, the the argument that you're making your book that's really interesting is it's not necessarily that it's hurting society, but it seems to be a a tool to kind of allow us to be docile in, in sort of being molded to the dictates of capital. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's one key uh, strand of my critique is the um, the depoliticizing of stress, the privatization of stress as an ideological discourse that has been quite dominant, not just the not just in mindfulness circles, but just the whole wellness industry and even mental health issues have been individualized. So individualizing social and political problems associated with stress. And some researchers have have called this kind of under a general umbrella, a healthism, where the individual has to take full responsibility for their own well-being. And that also ties in, I think, with sort of the micro- regulation and self-surveillance. You mentioned meditation apps. It's really kind of tied into this idea of self-optimization, the idea of self-monitoring. And part of the argument I make is that uh, this is kind of a way to make individuals more governable. So what's really kind of uh, subtle about this is that uh, this form of power is kind of a micro form of power that operates through the individual's so-called free will rather than against it. So it works through their subjectivity uh, rather than against it. And so it's the individualization, I guess, then of, of one's health or, or promoting one's uh, sense of well-being, which then kind of obscures uh, looking at the social, economic, and political determinants of, of stress. And let's just use the example of a factory because it seems like you have some personal experience there. I don't know how widely deployed mindfulness is in factories. Maybe it is. But let's just imagine, if we will, is it that You have a worker who has a productivity sort of goal to hit that is maybe perhaps unreasonable, working long hours on their feet, maybe doesn't have adequate access to healthcare and a million other things because they're not paid well. Is it that uh, sort of a bandaid on the problem is, oh, while you're at the factory line, you can do some breathing exercises to lower your anxiety, but that kind of obscures the fact that your bosses are exploiting you, you don't have healthcare, uh, and probably a, a million other things where if not for the mindfulness, you might ask, or maybe you might ask with the mindfulness, you might ask your, your fellow uh, factory worker to possibly unionize or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if any cases where mindfulness is, I haven't seen it where it's been deployed in, in Is it factories. in Am- Amazon warehouses? I know that's not a factory proper, but. Uh, no, I don't think they'd have any time to even try to practice mindfulness. <laughs> they're, they're like monitored like, like human robots. And, but that is interesting that um, where, where you do find corporate mindfulness programs are in more, you could say, elite companies like Google, 
But I think that point that you're making is is right on because what it what when you introduce a corporate mindfulness program, it's it's taught and it's the framing of it is you, know, you have problems with stress as an individual, so we're going to give you a, a technique so you can manage your own stress and. That doesn't really open up any kind of critical inquiry into why are so many people in the corporate world so stressed out, so burned out. You know, the uh, the problem is quite prevalent because uh, the Gallup poll that came out a few years ago showed that there was an employee uh, disengagement problem that was uh, widespread and that uh, U.S. companies were losing on the order of $300 billion a year. Is this just workers checking Facebook all day or Yeah, it could take that it could take that form where you you know you're goofing off or you know you're taking a lot of time off work, stress-related absences. Um, mm-hmm. And that's very concerning to centers of capital. It's very it's very concerning. So I I think it's really interesting that the corporate mindfulness uh movement really kind of uh, took off just a few years after the uh, downturn in 2008. And so you have all these workplace stressors that are going on. You know, you have heavy workloads, you know, staff have been cut, so now you have to do more with less. You could have job insecurity worries. You could have, you know, corporate uh, cultures, which are extremely toxic and hostile or whatever it may be. And so corporate mindfulness programs are imported, brought in, but there's actually absolutely no analysis or diagnosis by by these uh, training programs uh, or any kind of discussion that allows uh, individuals to collectively and in groups say, hey, you know, this is the reason why we're stressed. It has still a lot to do with uh, the corporate culture, has a lot to do with corporate policies. Not just that, but 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 also take a company like Google, where they've become sort of the poster child for corporate mindfulness, became very, very popular there uh, three or four years ago. And the program was called Search Inside Yourself, uh, S-I-Y. Um, started by uh, one of the Google engineers there. So it's interesting that you have 1,000, 1,500 engineers at Google who've been through the program. So they're getting some stress relief. There's, there's probably no doubt that they're getting some individual stress relief. But then they could focus better on actually designing technologies of distraction that are then exported back in, into, <laughs> into our culture and society. So we're making people more uh, uh, sharp and more focused, more concentrated, more effective, so that they can continue producing these products that are <laughs> designed to keep us uh, addicted. What's interesting is, and you make this point in your book, but John Cabot Zinn originally, and I guess to this day, will make claims that when we are more mindful, we're more aware of our surroundings, we become more compassionate, and kind of gives this revolutionary facade to mindfulness. Yet when it is implemented in places like Google, and to my knowledge, with his sort of, not that he's actively involved in all these projects, but sort of he's happy about the spread of it in this way. It, it seems to do exactly the opposite, right? This mindfulness t- technique, which is supposed to make us more compassionate aware, seems to often fuel different forms of cruelty. Well, yeah. I mean, the rhetoric, uh, that's one of the things that I, I really kind of deconstruct and, and call into question is is just this kind of overly inflated, uh, grandiose rhetoric of the mindfulness, so-called mindfulness revolution. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I asked the question, well, what revolution are you talking about? Uh, right. Uh, I see just, you know, mindfulness programs helping people to cope and to adjust to the status quo and to retreat into their uh, temporary respite from the capitalist uh, machinery. And uh, if that's a revolution, I think, wow, that's that's pretty pathetic. <laughs> and uh, 
So it's really more of a quietist uh, political. I think it, it encourages political quietism. Now you could make the argument. Well, wait a minute. If if I can take some time out for myself and you know catch my breath and get a little more clear-minded, I might be able then to resist. And I don't argue against that. That are, I don't uh, question that that's a possibility. That right. If we look some at some of the black feminist literature, that self-care was seen as a, a survival mechanism for for resistance. Right. But the way that the mindfulness is marketed, the way that it's taught, does does not go in that direction. Uh, I was talking to someone recently, actually, that uh, was a journalist I was talking to in Europe, and she uh, said that she went through the eight-week uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction course, and she started bringing up these issues about why she was so stressed because of her workplace. And they said, well, you know, that's really not what we're supposed to talk about here. <laughs> you know, let's just talk about our experience of, you know, how this exercise was for us. And, and so I think that deflection uh, misses a golden opportunity for uh, having more of kind of a critical pedagogy that could be incorporated into mindfulness programs so that we could expand beyond just the individual level. And, and that sort of awareness of, I guess the societal uh, implications of things is, is that part of the original sort of Buddhist teachings. Uh, I would say yes and no because mm. Buddhism is so vast. You could make the argument that, and I don't want to get too historical here, but early Buddhism was focused mostly on the monastic community, right? Uh, and so you had uh, individual salvation. Uh, so monks would uh, go off into the forest or. And, uh, you know, it was really the, the ideal of the arhat, uh, individual liber liberation from the cycle of, of, of birth and death or samsara, if you want so that's a Sanskrit term, for, for what? For suffering, existential suffering. And, and then the Mahayana school came around later and came up with a new sort of social vision that, you know, of the bodhisattva ideal, that bodhisattva is not out just to attain their own individual liberation, but to stick around until they can liberate all sentient beings. It's sort of the vision of social awakening. But the problem historically is that uh, most of Buddhism in pre-modern times, even up more recently in Asia, is that um, they depended on the patronage from kings and emperors. And so they really didn't, you know, it's hard to bite the hand that feeds you, so there wasn't really the social activist side that was uh, developed in, in Buddhism. Uh, it's only now that in the recent 20, 20 years or so, maybe even less, that there's been a splinter group within Western Buddhism called socially engaged Buddhism. This is kind of a, a new development where, because Buddhism in the West is still in its infancy in terms of its cultural translation, it's found its home mostly in psychology and in medicine. And uh, so people like myself and people like David Loy, who uh, is one of the pioneers in socially engaged Buddhism, you know, we're advocating that, uh, that we do have to focus on collective suffering. We do have to focus on suffering, not just at the individual level. Because mo most of our suffering, I mean, for people that are you know, on, on the brink of uh, precarity, e even if you look at mental, mental illness and mental health issues, more and more research is coming out saying it's really the social and political determinants that are that we really have to intervene at at uh, the social and political level and the economic level to uh, alleviate people's suffering. So the neoliberal sort of mindset or the neoliberal sort of ethos that is dominant now has uh, kind of worked against doing that. It's been taking away our social 
safety nets and destroying our public institutions and cutting you know our health uh health care it's a long-winded answer to to your question <laughs> well also it's that i'm not too familiar but there's the the dharma which is sort of the ethical code of, of buddhism is that correct uh well within in within buddhist teachings there's a, um, the eightfold noble path which is seen as uh, an in- integrated framework that includes ethical development and i think your point is that in the Western mindfulness version, it is divorced from the Dharma, uh, which includes the ethical considerations, so that uh, it kind of robs your ability to be mindful in a way that would possibly, you know, lead, lead you down the roads of these sorts of things you're talking about, whether it's social social awareness or, yeah, I don't, is, is that right? Uh, partly, um, there is a contested sort of argument in mindfulness circles about whether some of these simple practices will naturally lead to ethical behavior or pro-social behavior is the term they use in scientific literature. Which is Zen's argument. Yeah, I would say most, most of the mindfulness uh, advocates would argue that you know if you do these practices, it'll make you kinder and calmer and more compassionate. But there have been studies that uh, have been done recently that have uh, called into question whether that's actually true or not. So, I think that's one of the aspects of this. I think the other aspect is when you secularize mindfulness and turn it into a clinical technique, it really kind of changes the whole meaning of the practice. How so? Um, Well, because you've used it, it's turned into a tool, and the tool has a a particular aim to accomplish when you're using a technique or a tool. It's utilitarian then in in nature. It's, It's being used to achieve a particular purpose. And that particular purpose is pre-established. So, okay, I'm going to use mindfulness to lower my blood pressure, or I'm going to use it to enhance my focus at work so I can be more successful, or I'm going to use mindfulness so that I can be a little more uh, calm before I pull the trigger of my M16 in the battlefield. Right. Uh, or I'm going to use it as a Wall Street trader so that I could be, you know, have better, I'll be, uh, have a better mental edge. So in all these applications, it's it's serving the needs of uh, of some desire that the self has in in advance. Now I'm not denigrating the therapeutic parts of the of those. I, I wouldn't support the Wall Street trader, but right. or the or the uh, U.S. combat uh, soldier. But what that does is changes the meaning of the practice. And what I'm going where I'm going with that is that the three trainings that I talked about earlier: ethics, meditation, and wisdom. So we've kind of dropped off the ethics part of the equation, but we've also dropped away the wisdom side. And wisdom, uh, from the Buddhist point of view, is seeing into the nature uh, of uh, of the mind or the self and seeing uh, that it has no inherent, separate, independent existence. Hmm. It has no permanent, independent existence. And that takes a lot of work. It's a lifelong practice. So that's another point is that Doing a three-minute breathing exercise or using an app for five minutes while you're on the subway is very different than a lifelong practice that is guided by 2,600 years of, of uh, prior documentation and experimentation that's been codified mm. in various uh, teachings. Uh, because it's really about seeing through very root of what causes suffering. And that root is tied to delusion. The delusion that we're a separate self, that we're independently existing self, 
And that delusion is uh, the cause of much suffering because it, it creates a sense of separation. And it creates a sense that we're lacking, uh, we're lacking something essential. And so the whole drive, the whole desire is to uh, fill up that lack, the sense of existential lack. Mm. And that filling up of that lack, the drive to fill up a sense of lack fits very nicely into a capitalist economy that based on consumerism, based on uh, fame, uh, desire for power, all these kind of feed, it's a feeding frenzy <laughs> actually right. uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know keeping this, the, the wheel of samsara turning in the capitalist economy, it turns, spins very, very fast. And we could see that in terms of the acceleration of what's going on with you know digitalization globalization financialization uh, the echo crisis the uh, uh, environmental crisis so one of the things that drops off is the wisdom aspect because when you have the wisdom aspect it's it becomes very difficult then to instrumentalize uh, mindfulness practice there's a few great examples just getting back to the kind of ethical nature of it. You mentioned, uh, not mindfulness per se, but meditation. Himmler would take his elite SS officers to medieval castle for a, a meditation retreat. Um, obviously, you brought up the example of soldiers, but even Anders Breivik, the, uh, the terrorist, used meditation to sort of hone his ability to mass murder people. And I, I think it's interesting, earlier you had brought up engagement with work. Uh, people are disengaging for work from work because they're unfulfilled or overstressed or a variety of reasons. I, I, I just read David Graeber's bullshit jobs, which kind of <laughs> speaks to this crisis. So mindfulness as a tool for you to engage in your work, but also you, you have a whole chapter of this mindfulness is a tool to engage in killing. And you have a, a great statistic, which is in World War II, 75 to 80% of soldiers did not fire on exposed enemies. Um, this is uh, according to the army, I believe. So they used different psychological conditioning, including mindfulness, to sort of up that rate uh, of firing at the enemy. Yeah, I was really astounded when I, when I saw that figure. Um, and uh, it was during uh, prior to the Vietnam War than when they started introducing a lot more of desensitization techniques mm -hmm. that the, the firing rate uh, increased dramatically. And um, yeah, you, you make a really good point. And it's that I don't even know, you know, they use the word mindfulness in terms of what they say they're training these soldiers in, but I don't even think it's anything close to mindfulness. It's, I call it uh, attention enhancement training. Mm. And that's exactly what was used in World War II. Uh, by uh, Japanese uh, Imperial Japan. So what happened during World War II is that many of the Zen priests in Japan actually started supporting uh, Japanese nationalism in the war effort. And so they began even to distort Buddhist teachings. They mm. began to pervert them and, 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 and twist a lot of the doctrines. And for example, uh, you know, when, you, when you wield the sword and you kill someone, you're not actually killing someone. You're you're actually demonstrating an act of compassion, believe it or not. It's all emptiness, so you're not really killing anyone. And it, it just it was just amazing that even even Buddhists can uh, be be kind of guilty of, of these uh, sort of co-optations and perversions. And that's what happens when you get the state involved. Um, and so right. now the U.S. military has got a hold of it, and uh, there's been a tremendous amount of funding for it to various uh, scientists and 
But yeah, when it when it when it's reduced, when mindfulness is reduced to nothing more than intention enhancement, then you know it can be used for terrorists. Uh, terrorists can use it, like what happened in uh, in Norway. Right. You draw an interesting parallel with stress science um, and the tobacco lobby. So if you would tell the story real quick, but as I recall, the tobacco lobby really wanted studies out there about how stress is bad for everyone and cigarettes as sort of a a knight in shining armor to save the day to de-stress people. Um, Well, can you explain that story a a little bit and then maybe talk about how it is similar or not similar to what's happening with mindfulness? Yeah, that was a remarkable uh, uh, story of Hans Selle, who in the 1950s, 1960s, he he was known as the father of stress, very, very popular back in those days. And the tobacco industry approached him, and they were interested in in marketing uh, smoking as a form of stress relief. And so they recruited Selly and started uh, paying him different sums of money, quite a bit of money back in the day. And uh, some of the lawyers, some of the lawyers who were uh, part of this uh, public relations campaign actually uh, told him what to say. (laughs) I mean, it was... uh, uh, they were trying to say, look, uh, we, we want to see, we want to kind of portray cigarette smoking as a, a healthy diversion, I think was one of the terms they used, a healthy diversion to sort of take away, uh, take the focus off of uh, the scientific research that was starting to correlate cigarette smoking and nicotine addictions to uh, cardiovascular diseases and cancer and so forth. And so, you know, Selly was out there actually at government hearings. He was uh, uh, at government hearings and arguing against uh, the regulation of tobacco. And uh, he did not reveal uh, that he was working for the tobacco industry. Hmm. The, in Canada, I think the Canadian tobacco group uh, was paying him like 50000 a year for three years. And this is way back in, in the late 60s. Yeah. A lot of money back then. And then even after that, type A personality, which was also very popular back then, I think it was Friedman and Roseman. They were uh, American cardiologists. Well, the tobacco industry approached them as well and uh, uh, gave them a ton of money. Uh, we're trying to uh, kind of do a uh, bait and switch and say that, you know, it's really the type A personality. Uh, cigarettes are not really the cause. And I, I think they donated like $11 million to, 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 to their institute at UCSF. University of uh, California, San Francisco. But um, yeah, that was a remarkable uh, investigative uh, reporting that was done by some researchers in London that uncovered uh, these documents that had finally been made public. Uh, They were like sifting through them and there were all these files and online archives uh, that they found and just uh, uncovered all all this uh, interesting letters back and forth from, from tobacco companies and selly and, and you know, it was just remarkable and what's the connection to to mindfulness that you make in your book well the connection i make to mindfulness when it comes to stress is that stress is a modern concept you know we've heard the term we you know we say well i'm really stressed out and it's interesting that that term really didn't enter the cultural parlance until the early 1980s mm. but the Discourse is primarily twofold. One is that we hear that stress is an epidemic, and that sort of implies then it's just a natural part of modern life. And because it's an epidemic, that means that it's up to us 
to get it under control, that we have to uh, manage stress, we have to adapt to these conditions. And so what that does is actually it pathologizes stress and puts the onus uh, for the management of it onto us as individuals. So what gets obscured then are the social and political and economic factors that are also very much uh, implicated in the stresses that we're feeling on a day-to-day level. And uh, Dana Becker wrote a really cool book. Uh, can't remember the title offhand, but she calls this the doctrine of stressism. And what that basically means is that we see stress, we describe it primarily just as a, a problem of individual lifestyles. We're making the wrong choices as individuals. And not as a societal problem. Right. So that puts the burden back on us then and kind of obfuscates all the, the social forces political forces that are uh, intertwined and entangled in the generation of, of social suffering and, su- and stress in society. So that doctrine kind of gets played out in the mindfulness circles in a couple of ways. And one is that um, it's operating off of kind of like a biological reductionistic view of stress. We hear the, the trope that we're, we're cavemen, we're like maladaptive, uh, maladapted cavemen but living in the 21st century, right? Right. So with cavemen, you know, they were uh, hunter-gatherers. You know, they had to deal with going out and hunting and dealing with uh, predators like saber-toothed tigers. And so our biology had uh, this fight-or-flight instinct hardwired into our evolutionary biology. And uh, that allowed, you know, them to run really quick and get back to the cave and but uh, because we haven't really evolved biologically, our brains haven't really evolved that much since then. We're still like inheritors. We've inherited this uh, uh, flawed biology. And uh, so when someone uh, insults us or, or, a bo- or a boss at work is giving us a hard time, that fight flight instinct kicks in and we're overreacting as if we're you know, dealing with a saber-toothed tiger. That's sort of the, that's sort of the trope. But again, that kind of reduces stress then to something that's completely self-contained. I think the overall argument is that when stress releases for specific short periods of time, say running away from a cyber to, uh, saber-toothed tiger, fine, it's not that bad for you in the same way uh, currently if, if we are stressed out. But people are chronically stressed, so our bodies constantly being exposed to the hormones associated with stress, which are terrible for our cardiovascular system and probably a million other things that I'm unaware of. Um, But I think your argument is just that it's not that we're doing our breathing exercises wrong. It's that society is designed to do that to us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no denying the fact that our physiology is uh, uh, going going bonkers in uh, modern society. Mm. And uh, it's not denying that we're not feeling stress. I mean, we definitely are parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system is completely out of whack. There's no doubt about it. But the the rhetoric and, and the discourse is it's because you're not adapting well, you know. And so, you know, the, the implicit idea then is that if only we had evolved further <laughs> biologically, right, then everything would be fine, you know. But, but we have this uh, outdated biology that we have to compensate for, then we compensate by uh, taking on mindfulness meditation. To me, I think it's a survival of the fittest ideology in the way that it naturalizes stress. See, I think that's really the point I'm trying to make. Hmm. It naturalizes stress and ignores the structural factors 
that that are causing our our responses. It's uh, in a way, it's it's a complete depoliticizing of of stress and uh, seeing it, it, putting it in the realm of necessity, putting it in the realm of something that is no longer the domain of governments and no longer domain of the public sphere, the political sphere. It's now the realm of necessity within our own biological uh, makeup, our own uh, choice in terms of uh, what we do to manage and adapt. The last thing I want to talk about is, so argument number one, I think we, we've covered pretty well, but argument number two is about the science itself of, of mindfulness. So uh, I'm quoting an article uh, about that mentioned you uh, in Aeon, but the quote is, Kabat-Zinn and his followers claim that mindfulness practices can help with alleviating physical pain, treat mental illness, boost productivity and creativity, and help us understand our true selves. And some things you point out in your book, for instance, uh, you sort of cast some doubt on the fact that mindfulness apps could achieve that versus an actual practitioner. You mentioned this great study with, I think it was longtime meditators and uh, binge drinking college students, and they took some oh, sort yeah. of mind. They took a mindfulness survey to that would ostensibly measure how mindful they were of their surroundings, and the the binge drinking college students were more mindful. Yeah, that that was you know that that was part of the problem with these self report measures that they use a lot in these studies. So a few other things, I, I think you're suspicious that a lot of the studies are done by mindfulness practitioners themselves rather than, say, a psychologist who's uh, disinterested in uh, a university somewhere. But I guess I'm just trying to parse out what, because as I look on, and I'm not a scientist, I look on Google Scholar, I see meta-analyses that suggest that in certain things it does help. Um, found stuff on stress reduction in cancer patients, uh, stress in healthy individuals. I saw individual studies about you know PTSD and anxiety. So is it is it that there's a core of sort of what mindfulness can do well uh, and possibly help people in a medical context, and then sort of the marketing on top of that that may blow it out of proportion? What's going on? Yeah, I think that it's complex, and I, I think that uh, uh, if we if we look at the medical, therapeutic, clinical applications of mindfulness, that's where it that's where it began. It began in the hospital clinic, and that's where a lot of the research had initially started. And as I said throughout the book, I'm not denying that people are getting therapeutic benefits from from these uh, clinical mindfulness applications. Although, uh, as I do say, that the hype. Uh, around these studies uh, has really kind of overreached. And so the public enthusiasm has uh, outpaced the actual science. Is there a specific moment, uh, say a news article or a specific claim that you think that's particularly true with? Well, there were actually some federal studies that, that came out even as early as 2007 that were already questioning the methodological rigor, uh, lack of, lack thereof of these studies. Uh, pro probably the the real uh, one that hit hit the ball out of the, out of the park was the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association JAMA study. It was a meta analytic study done at John Hopkins. They they looked at over eighteen thousand citations of mindfulness studies, and because it was a meta analytic study, only forty seven of those fit their criteria for examination. And so when they looked at those forty seven studies, they saw that the uh, the effects uh, the significant effects were very, very modest. Mm. And so that, that was really a, a kind of a seminal study. But there was even one that came out recently among some of the mindfulness scientists. Uh, the title of it was called Mind the Hype. 
and it was like 15 authors on this particular study. And uh, they concluded, even the, they concluded at the end that, uh, yeah, we've been guilty. <laughs> we've been guilty of propagating this hype and uh, we really need to uh, kind of pull in the reins and uh, uh, be a lot more careful in what we're doing. And they had a whole list of problems that they delineated. They they said, look, we've been, you know, the propagation of poor research and misinformation can actually harm people. But going back to your point, you know, I think we do have to sift through and see, you know, what sort of applications are actually helping people like cancer patients, like you mentioned. So it's not a, a broad brush stroke here where it's all garbage. So I, I think it's, it's just, uh, it's, well, you know, scientists have to compete for funding. Yeah. And it's, a, it's an enterprise. And, uh, you know, the other aspect that we didn't mention is the positive reporting bias in the literature right. is very prevalent as well. Because um, if you're hunting for grant, uh, federal grant funding, you know, it's, there are some uh, self-interest involved in that. Thank you so much, Ron. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Ron Purser's book is McMindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality. I highly recommend it. Definitely check it out. Thank you so much, Ron. If you're a fan of the podcast, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening. Also, follow Critical Theory on Twitter at Crit Theory. Send us some interview suggestions and we'll check them out. Thanks for listening.